<laughs> so take your Bible and open to Psalm 95. And if you need a Bible, there's one right on the table in front of you. Psalm 95. Many mainline churches follow a prescribed order of worship, which is often put in the bulletin. If you've been to a mainline church, you will look in the bulletin, you'll see this order of worship, and the first thing you'll notice is a prelude. Does anybody go to a church in their life that used to attend a church like that? Prelude is music, often organ music that prepares your heart for worship. If you really go to a liturgical church, you might see something called an introit. Yes. Who knows what an introit is? Anybody know what that is? Right. That is music, and oftentimes it's, it's sung, sometimes in an antiphonal way, while the minister and those who are going to minister in that service enter the back of the sanctuary and walk down the main aisle to the front. And that music is called an introit. And then the minister stands up and he gives what is known as a call of worship. And oftentimes he will read a psalm, first couple of verses of a psalm. And this would be an example of a psalm that would be used for a call of worship. In the 4th century, this would be in the 300s AD, the church actually used Psalm 95 as a call for worship. Now this would have been the Latin church. This would have been a church in the Roman Empire where the language now officially was Latin. And uh, they referred to this psalm as the Venite, which is the Latin translation of the first two words in that psalm. O come. And so they would use Psalm 95 as their call of worship. Now what we're going to do is we're going to divide the psalm into two sections. The first section is the call to worship, and it's very apparent that that's what it is. That's verses 1 through 7, the three-fourths three of verse 7. And then the last part of verse 7 down to the end of the psalm, verse 11, that's going to be a warning. So you're going to have an invitation or a summons to worship, verses 1 through 7, and then an exhortation or a warning not to resist God's call to worship. And that's the remainder of the psalm. So let's look at the invitation or the summons to worship. Look at verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So this is a call to worship, and it's a call to the community. It's a call to the congregation. It's a call, not a single call, but a call to the entire community to come, meaning come together, gather for the purpose of worship. So come and do what? Well, four things. Come and do what? Four things. Let us, let us, let us, and let us. You see that in the first few verses? First of all, let us sing. Let us sing. Uh, that's the first act of worship, the singing. And that's why even in these liturgical churches, the introit is the first thing that a congregation does. It starts singing as they 
ministers move forward. And psalms themselves are songs. And the early church would sing psalms. Now notice to whom you sing. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the God who made a covenant with Israel, and he basically signed an agreement, if you will, metaphorically speaking, that he would bless the people if they followed his instructions. So that's the Lord. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh or Jehovah. Okay? So let us worship Jehovah. Okay, the second thing we're to do. Let us, look at this, shout. Some worship is meant to be loud. Not all worship is meant to be loud. Sometimes we are to worship the Lord quietly and reverently. But sometimes we are to shout. And uh, how are we to shout? What does it say? Let us shout joyfully. Notice the object of the shout. <laughs> we're shouting to somebody and we're shouting joyfully. We're shouting joyfully to the rock of our salvation. The word salvation means deliverance. Don't think of salvation about going to heaven in this song. It's we are shouting joyfully to the God who is our rock. Our rock of our deliverance. You know when an army or somebody was coming uh, toward you, oftentimes you would climb up behind the rock and the rock would protect you. Or you would actually throw the rock and the rock would, you know, be a weapon. And so here's God who is who delivers us, and uh, so that makes sense. You would shout joyfully if you've just been rescued. If God's just protected you from a battle or from an enemy. When somebody rescues you, you go, you're pretty excited. So you shout, so what's what we have here? Now the third thing that we're to do, is found in verse two, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. So. We sing, we shout, and we pray. This is a thanksgiving from our lips, not from our hearts, although it's from that as well, but this is talking about what we do vocally. We come into his presence with thanksgiving on our lips. Notice where the worship takes place. Before his presence, which in the Old Testament would have been the tabernacle or the temple, depending on the time of this song. Today we would say it would be where? In the church. And that's where the Spirit of God is when the people of God gather, or at least the Spirit should be there. So we do it in His presence. And then we have the fourth let us. Look at this. Let us shout joyfully. That's almost a repeat of verse 1, isn't it? To Him with psalms with psalms. Notice the first section of verse 2. With thanksgiving. Look at the last section of verse 2. With psalms. So we are to shout joyfully with psalms or with songs, basically. So the shouting is not just shouting. It's singing loud. It's singing robustly. Now why are we to worship God in this way? Verse 3. For Jehovah, this covenant God, who's entered into an agreement with Israel, God's people, is the great 
God. We worship Him because of His greatness. He is great. And what else does it say? For the Lord is the great God, and not only is He that, He's the great King above all gods. He's the ruler over all gods. So, there's no other God that compares to Jehovah. We have a song that goes something like that. I forget how it goes, but you're familiar with it. Now, the heathen believed that God was just one of many gods. Uh, they believed that God was a tribal God. He was a God of the Jewish people, just as there were gods over Egypt, and there were gods over the Canaanites, and so on and so forth. They saw God as simply one of the gods over a nation, over tribes. But note the definite article in verse 3. For the Lord is the great God, the only one who is great. And He is the great ruler or king above all other gods. So there's only one like Jehovah, and no one can match him. Now, notice it says there are other gods. Now, most of these gods were the gods of uh, people's imagination. You know, the Egyptians had all these gods, Osiris, and all these different gods. But they were figments of the people's imagination. The Bible says they weren't real. They would make real things. They'd make idols and say, now that's the God so-and-so that we worship. But that was made by man's hands. It wasn't a real God. But Paul does say something. He says, behind these figments of imagination, behind these idols, lurk demons. And when you worship a God that you created yourself, you're actually worshiping demons. And he says, be careful about worshiping all these false gods and these false idols. So we worship God because He's great. Now there's another reason why we worship God. Look at verse 4. In His hands are the deep places of the earth. Which simply means He controls the seas. If you have something in your hand, you have control of it. He controls the seas. End of verse 4. In His hands are the heights of the hills. That means he controls the mountains. The hills are his also. He controls them because they belong to him. He, uh, he's created them, in a sense. So he controls them. Just like because you created your children, you should control your children. <laughs> the sea is his. Look at that first five. Why is it his? Because he made it. That's why it's his. The sea is his because he made it. Notice, he controls the sea. It's in his hands. And it's his because he made it. It doesn't belong to Neptune. It doesn't belong to the god Poseidon. Although that's what the nations would have said. The sea is his. It's in his hand, he controls it, and he controls it because he made it. And then look what it says in verse 5. And his hands formed the dry land. So we worship God because he's a great God, and he's the creator God, he's above everything else. That makes sense, doesn't it? 
Okay, now we have what was sort of a second call to worship. Or maybe it's simply a repeat. But look at verse 6. Notice the wording. Oh, come. See, same thing that you had in verse 1. Gather together. And followed by two let us's. Let us worship and bow down. Sounds a lot like that song that we sing in church, doesn't it? Prostrate yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord. Get as low as you can, because in comparison with Him and His greatness, we are far less. Let us, verse 6, kneel before Jehovah our Maker. Now notice, our Maker. Now we have to ask a question. We have up in verse 5 that God made the hills and He made the sea. And now it says He's made us. Now, this could be talked about God created Adam and Eve, He created the human family, God is a creator who made us. could be that. But there's a difference. He made the seas and He made the hills out of what? Nothing. But he made man out of what? Out of something. <laughs> so I don't think that this is talking about God making us, and that's why we're to worship him and bow down, because he's created us, and he's our creator as well as the hills. I think what it's saying is, the phrase, our maker, refers to Israel. He's the one who created Israel. Israel, the Hebrews were in Egyptian bondage. The rock of our deliverance. God delivers Israel out of Egyptian bondage. They cross the sea. He controls the sea. He gets up on a mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments. And then he enters into a covenant with his people. And he forms or makes the nation of Israel. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's why we worship him. Because he has created the nation of Israel. He is Israel's God. And he's our God as well. Does that make sense? Could be that he created us. We know that he did, but that would sort of be obvious. So now look at verse 7. He's our God, and this, see that this sort of makes sense. And we are the people of his pasture. And that means that the other nations are not his people. They're outside of his pasture. They don't recognize him. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So he has control over us. Personally takes care of us. He takes care of us, controls us. Now, at this point, we're not finished with verse 7. And everything changes at this point. There's a drastic change in tone. And notice what happens at the end of verse 7. It says this. And this begins our next section. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Notice it's a warning. Do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. So, what's going on? Why would the psalmist go from a, issuing a summons, and then right in the middle of verse 7, just change the whole tone and throw out a warning? Be careful now. Don't harden your hearts. Well, one of the reasons would be that when the Old Testament was written, there were no verses. There were no verse numbers. They didn't have verse 1. When Moses stood up, he didn't say, now look at verse 1. 
David didn't say, look at verse 6. The verses were not added to the scripture until 1571 by Robert uh, Stephanos. And he was a printer. You know, the printing press had just come into existence in the 1500s. And this man was a printer. He decided to print the Bible. He said, you know, it would make it easier for people to read it if I put verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. And he's the one that added it. And so here's a good place where he should have ended the verse after the sheep of his hand and made verse 8 today, but he didn't do that. So uh, notice it says in verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Remember what Jesus said? My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. I know my sheep. And they follow me. Now notice that. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And what do they do? Follow me. So if you are in God's pasture, if you're one of his people, you hear his voice. You have a relationship with him. He knows you. You don't only know him. He knows you. And then guess what? You follow him. Okay? Now notice two words in verse 7. Number one, I want you to notice the word if. Should be translated and it means when. When you hear his voice. It's not if like you might hear it, you might not hear it. When you hear his voice. So that's the first word, the word if. And then look at the word today. That means now. Okay? Today means now. Today is always now, isn't it? Yes. Today's not yesterday. <laughs> Today's not tomorrow. What's today? It's right now. Now, yesterday was today. <laughs> and tomorrow will be a today. So when you were living yesterday, it was today. And if he spoke to you, you should have listened to his voice. And tomorrow will be today, and if he speaks to you tomorrow, you need to listen to his voice and not harden your heart. But the day always represents now. That's the thing that you need to understand. It simply means when he speaks. Whenever he speaks. It will always be a today. And when that happens, there needs to be a right response and avoid the wrong response. And the wrong response comes with a warning. And it says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So that means we can hear his voice and we harden his heart. We harden our hearts. Now, this is a verse that is quoted in the New Testament, which is very interesting. I want to show this to you. I want you to go over to Hebrews chapter 3. It's quoted a couple times. I'm only going to show you one section. And look at Hebrews chapter 3. And I'll just sort of give you a summary and then we'll read a few verses. In Hebrews 3, it basically says that Jesus is greater than Moses. That's basically what the chapter is talking about. He's greater than Moses. And then in verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your heart. See that? So, the Old Testament talks about Jehovah being the God who speaks today, and when he speaks, don't harden your heart. The writer of Hebrews says it is Jesus who speaks today, and don't harden your heart. And he attributes this verse to the Holy Spirit. You see that? The Holy Spirit says, this is where we get our idea that the Scripture is inspired by God. It's not just David writing a psalm or Moses writing the book of Exodus. It is God speaking. It's inspired by God. They were moved to write. So therefore, the Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, and now this is Jesus speaking, His voice, do not harden your heart. As in the rebellion. In other words, like they did back in the day of rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years, the miracles. Therefore, I was angry with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. And they've not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then the writer of Hebrews says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but rather exhort one another. Every day, while it's called to death, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And then he goes on and he says this, says more about how we need to obey God, to obey his instructions when we hear him. It says in chapter 4, and I'm not going to read all of it, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, he's promised that we could enter his rest, whatever that means, we'll talk about it in a second. Let us not fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as them, back in the Old Testament. But the word which they heard didn't profit them. Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And then he goes on and he says down in verse 7, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, meaning the psalm, today, after a long time, as he has said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now, here is the writer of Hebrews who has taken this Psalm 95 and has used it for basically a chapter and a half. Now, go back to Psalm 95 and look at the context. It's very interesting what it says. Because Psalm 95 at this point is describing what happened to Israel after God delivered them from Egypt. This is a post-Exodus exhortation, if you will. And remember what happened after they, got, after they crossed the Red Sea on dry land and God's taking care of them? Guess what they start doing? Start complaining. And they test God. And they said, Oh, do we have to have that same old food every day? Another time they say, we're thirsty. And God says to Moses, man, will you, fuck, you need to do something. Strike that rock, will you? 
And when he does, water gushes out. They have water. Does that make them happy? They're not happy. They're constantly complaining. And, and uh, this angers God. So when you read verse 7 and 8 in Psalm 95, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in the day of rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, God was so angry with these people that he called this place where they rebelled against him and where they tried him. And some of your Bibles have footnotes. You'll see the word what? Meribah. And Meribah means rebellion or contention. I'm going to call this the place, hey, the place of contention. And then what's the next word that you see down there? Massa. Do you see that? That's the word trial. This is where they tried me or they tested me. So here's how it reads. Do not harden your heart as in the days of Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When did that happen? When your fathers tested me. They tried me. They tried my patience. God's very angry with me. They tried my patience. When you got when your kids were little, he said, "Look, you're trying my patience." That does not mean you're having a good day, right? <laughs> Look what it says. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. They saw the opening of the Red Sea. They saw the miracles that Moses performed. They saw the manna coming down from heaven. They saw all of this. They weren't satisfied. They continued to test him. So instead of hearing his voice and walking by faith and obeying God, they were always doubting God. They were always in this adversarial position with God and they disputed with God. How long did they do that? Forty years. It took them forty years to cross that wilderness to the promised land. That is an eleven day journey. It took them, I calculated this this morning, 14,600 days for an 11-day journey. 14,600 days to go 11 days. Because they angered God, and they tested God. And he says, in verse 10, he says this, For 40 years I was grieved. That means I was angry. I loathed them. That's what the word means. Grieved with, with that generation. Say. And said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts. They do not know my ways. They heard his voice, but they hardened their hearts. And they didn't follow him. And they angered God. So it took them 40 years. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me is that even though it took them 40 years and God was angry with them the whole time, he took care of them the whole time. He kept his end of the covenant. He kept his end of the bargain. They didn't keep their end, but guess what? He kept his end. And he took care of them. But when they got on the edge of the promised land, the place where they would finally rest, he said, none of you are going to get to go in. You're not going to get the inheritance. Because you're really not my people. 
You've been distrusting, you've been disputing, you've been doubting. It's like some parents. They have adult kids. I would just go and bum. They take care of them. Day in and day out. But they're not happy about it. The parents are always angry that they have to do this. Why don't you go ahead and get a job, you bum? At least that's how I would describe my parents. I know good parents don't do that. But that's, how, that's how a street does things. Go out and get a job, you bum. They don't go out, but guess what? You can't let them starve. You can't let them go out and live on the streets. I guess you could, but you don't. You take care of them, but you hate every minute of them. But you do it. Why? Because you're their parents. But when it comes time for you to write your will, guess who's not getting, a, getting any money? It's going to be your kids are not getting They don't get the inheritance. Now, Lynn and I know a guy that lived back in near Baltimore many years ago, and he wrote his will, and none of his kids got any of the money. But he left everything to his grandkids when they were 21. Or if they went to college, he was going to take care of their college. But the kids got nothing. That stirred them. Those kids got mad. <laughs> Why did they get mad? Because he wasn't going to take care of them after he died, you know? And so God is angry and he says, basically, you know what? I've taken care of you for 40 years. You never came with a shout of joy. You never came with songs of joy. You never came into my presence with lips of thanksgiving. All you do is doubt and dispute and try me. And so that generation didn't go into the promised land. No. So that's what he says in verse 11. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter. Notice he swore in his wrath. He was angry. He said, you're not going to enter into my rest. Now, this is very similar, I think, in many ways. We look at the people of God today, which is the church. There are many church people who really aren't born again. You know. But they come to church, and they benefit. They benefit from God's presence. They benefit from being in a church around Christian people. Uh, but their heart really isn't in it. And in the end, you know, they get all the benefits in the sense of being, quote, Christian, in the nominal sense. But in the end, they do not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's, I think, a good application. And that's what the writer of Hebrews was basically saying. You know, you're in the church. He's writing to church people. You're in the church, but you... You've hardened your heart. You're not listening to his voice. And you're not going to enter into the rest. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So, what's the solution? The solution is to answer the call of worship. See? It's to bow down in humility and cry out to God and sing songs of praise and, and raise our voice in thanksgiving to God because he's our deliverer. Submit to, uh, to the ruler of the universe. And not only giving lip service, but giving life service. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they what? They follow me. See? The mark of a Christian is that the Christian follows Jesus. That's called perseverance of the saints. The mark that we are Christians is that we persevere all the way to the end. 
We don't persevere in order to get saved. We don't persevere in order to stay saved, like some denominations say. We persevere because we are saved. That's called the perseverance of the saints. And so we're giving this life service all the way to the end. So in the end, we inherit the kingdom of God. Amen? Next week we'll pick up at Psalm 96. Lord, we thank you for this word. Help us to take it to heart. Help us to examine our own lives. Are we complainers? Are we contentious? Are we, or are we joyful? With thanksgiving in our hearts and on our lips. Do we follow you? Do we obey you? You say, harden not our heart. Hear your voice, which means hear your voice and obey. Help us, Lord, to be obedient servants of the living God. And we ask this in the name of Jesus.